I love dodging kids on the way up here. Just reminds me how blessed we are as parents with our children and as a church with children to instruct in the Lord. What a profound blessing it is to remember this morning that God's mercy is greater than all of our sins. What would we do this morning if that weren't true? What would happen to us? What would come of us? We would be swept away. We would be swept away like chaff that the wind drives away, just like Psalm 1 tells us. But we worship this morning, we rejoice this morning because it is not the case that our sins are piled on top of us. You know, we think of Pilgrim's Progress where the burden of Christian falls right off. That is what the Lord has done for us in his mercy, and he has declared us righteous in his sight, and his mercy is greater than all of our sins. Praise God for another opportunity to gather corporately and worship the Lord for these great truths. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 to 29. Exodus 10. 21 to 29. As most of you know, for several weeks now, maybe at this point we could say several months. I don't think we're at several yet. I guess you have to be more than three for several. Uh, But for several weeks now, we have been looking at the 10 plagues. So we're going through Exodus as a church. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been going through Exodus. And we have reached, somewhat recently, the 10 plagues. So we're going through this portion of Exodus, and it's kind of become as often happens in any expositional series as you go through a book. Uh, it has kind of become a little series on the ten plagues within the larger series on Exodus. I remember when uh, we talked about that a little with the Sermon on the Mount, when uh, several years ago we went through the Sermon on the Mount and we came to the portion on prayer. And we ended up having a number of sermons there on prayer and became a little bit of a mini-series on the topic of prayer as we are going through this portion of God's Word. And so that's what's happened, I think, here with the ten plagues. We have been watching the hand of God, the finger of God, as the magicians of Pharaoh said. This is the finger of God. We've been watching God's hand, God's finger in action. Now, we know, of course, that God is incorporeal. It's a big word, I know. You don't have to worry about writing that one down. But it simply means that God is without a body. God does not have a body. And be surprised how many believers don't know that or how many believers sort of picture God being corporeal. Now, we know that uh, God the Word, God the Son, took on flesh and took upon himself a human soul and body. But God, in his nature, does not have a body. He is incorporeal. We know this from many places throughout the scriptures, but probably the most obvious and significant is Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman. In John 4, verse 24, where Jesus says to her, God is spirit. God is spirit. He does not have a body. So we know this. And that tells us when we see this language of God's strong arm or his mighty hand or his finger at work, it is meant to convey his power. 
It is a way of capturing for those of us who do things, who exercise our ability, who exercise our power with our arm and our hand and our fingers. It is meant to convey for us God's power. His power to to touch and move. His power to impact and change things. To change matter. To move things around in his created order. God is all powerful. And we see this language in scripture to convey that power. And that's what we've been watching. God's mighty power at work for Egyptian eyes to see. We've talked about that. For Israelite eyes to see. The Egyptians look upon the power of God. And God is glorified in this pagan land. God is glorified in his power before the eyes of his people who undoubtedly had become assimilated with the religious practices of the peoples of Egypt. We see this, for example, with the golden calf, sort of hearkening back to the type of worship that would have gone on in Egypt. God is showing his people that he alone is God, that he alone has the power, that he is the glorious I am. So he's working his mighty power before Egyptian eyes and before Israelite eyes. But he is working his power out in this time before our eyes. These events were not merely meant for the people who experienced them. We talked about that last week. They were meant for the children of those people, the grandchildren of those people, and all the way down to the nations to us. As we sit here this morning and we read these passages, and in the last several weeks, months, we've been reading these passages, we are seeing God's mighty power at work before our eyes. So my question for us is, are we paying attention? Are we seeing these realities? Are we taking these things in? Are we listening? Are we appropriating Are we allowing the power of God manifested in his word to affect the way we think and live, move and have our being? Or is it just some sort of ancient story that has no relevancy to our lives? It is relevant to our lives. It is immediately relevant. It destroys all worry. It crushes all pride, tramples on every idol, God is displaying his glory for us to see. Are you seeing it? And consider this as we go through the plagues. I think we are also meant to understand that God's judgment is real. God's judgment is really real. It is really, really real. It is easy for us, especially in the modern world, we, we come to church and, and we, we say that, yes, there is, there is a real hell Yes, God really judges. Yes, God is a God of love, but he is also a God of wrath, both of which are displayed at the cross. God is the judge, and his judgment is real, and his judgment is severe. It wipes away. It destroys. It consumes. Do we we really... Believe that in the way we relate to sin, God's discipline? 
Do we really believe that in the way that we share our faith with other people, what we say to other people? Is God just a a, a massive therapist that makes people happy? Or does God in Christ rescue us from eternal hell? That's the gospel. The wrath to come will not fall upon those who trust in Jesus Christ. God's judgment is real and it is coming upon this world and it is already being meted out on this world. And it will come in a cataclysmic way at the end, the day of the Lord. Do we take God's judgment seriously? Stories like this remind us that God's judgment is real. It's not just a theological proposition. It is something exercised in space and time. And it will come in an ultimate sense one day in this very world, in this very space and time. And the only way to escape is through the blood of Christ. The title for the sermon this morning is The Ninth Plague Lights Out. And you'll see that up here on the screen. The ninth plague lights out. As I've said before, the structure of the ten plagues can be understood with a simple math problem. Three plus three plus three plus one. The first nine plagues can be divided into three sets of three, with the tenth plague acting as a capstone. It really is like the cherry on top, the cherry of God's judgment on top. Three plus three plus three plus the capstone that ends it all. The first nine plagues are divided, as I said, into these three sets of three. So today, as we look at the ninth plague, we come to the end of the normal sequence. Things are going to look different after today. This is the end of the third set of three. The last plague of the third set. And after today, the only thing left is the death of the firstborn. The Passover, the Exodus, all of these things rolled into one. The Passover for the Israelites, the killing of the firstborn, the executing of the firstborn for them taking God's firstborn from the Egyptian perspective and the Exodus, which involves everyone. The Israelites will be taken out as Pharaoh drives them away from his land. And they are given wealth from the Egyptians. This is what's coming after today. So we're reaching the end. This kind of functions as the end of the plagues in some respects because the pattern that we've been following, Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh and Pharaoh doing what he does, all of that pattern that we've been following, now today will be the ninth time that we've seen this. It'll stop after today. And we will see this extensive description of the events surrounding the tenth plague. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. Exodus 10, verses 21 to 29. This is the word of the Lord. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. 
Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve Yahweh. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve Yahweh our God. And we do not know with what we must serve Yahweh until we arrive there. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his blessing over the teaching of his word, both for uh, the one teaching and those who are hearing, and all of us are hearing. Uh, I say this to people sometimes, and they, 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 they kind of understand, or maybe don't, but if you've ever preached before, you do understand how God speaks to our hearts, even in the moment of preaching. You know, not everything that you say when you preach is, is written out. You know, that depends on who's uh, doing it and how, much you, you, how many notes you put before you. But the Lord does, does all kinds of things providentially. As his word is being taught. And so all of us, we're sitting under, each and every one of us sitting under the teaching of God's word as we come to him now in prayer. So let's ask for God's blessing. Let's ask that he would speak to each of us as his word is understood. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning. We praise you for your kindness to us. Lord, none of us deserves to be here. We don't deserve to be gathered together with your people. We don't deserve to have open Bibles before us. We don't deserve to have our children being taught your truth. Father, we don't deserve anything. Father, we have rebelled against you. We have sinned against you. We have loved self more than your glory. We have exalted ourselves and our pleasures and our comforts above our Creator. We have failed to give you honor and give you thanks. We have suppressed your truth in unrighteousness. We have replaced the Creator with created things. Father, we have gone our own way. Lord, we ask that you would be merciful to us and we'd know that you have been merciful to us in Jesus Christ. So we come before you this morning in his holy name. In the name of Christ. Not just tacking those words on, but Lord, we, we gather only in his name. We don't pretend to approach you or to be able to come to you freely apart from Jesus Christ apart from his blood, apart from his divinity and his humanity, apart from his perfect obedience to you and his sacrificial death and resurrection and ascension, sitting at your right hand in glory. We come as he intercedes for us, as the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, the very Spirit which he has poured out into our hearts. Father, we praise you that you have given us these passages to read and to learn from. 
God to see you in your glory. Would this not be in vain as we walk away from this ninth plague, the series of events that we have seen over these last few months, Lord, we pray that this time would not have been in vain for any of us. And Lord, if there are things today that you have put out there before that have not been seen or grasped or understood, Lord, we pray that they would be today, that you would be merciful to us in showing us clearly who you are, what you have done, and what you are doing. Father, we thank you that your presence is with us, that your spirit is guiding this service, and we ask that you would help those of us who are leading this service to be humble before your face and to love your people. We pray now that you would open our ears and open our hearts, that we would be hearers of the word, but also doers, even now and when we leave here today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we take in this description of the ninth plague, it can be divided into two parts. If you take notes, you can, you can write these down if you'd like, if that's one way that you stay engaged with what's being taught. So uh, two parts to this description of the ninth plague. First, darkness falls, and then second, negotiation fails. So first, darkness falls, verses 21 to 23, and then negotiation fails, verses 24 to 29. So let's begin with darkness falls, verses 21 to 23. Look with me there at those verses, if you would. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. You may remember from last time that we ended in our usual place in chapter 10, verse 20. And what was the usual place that we ended at when we come to the end of one of these plagues? Of course, uh, we know by now with Pharaoh's hardened heart. Each of the plagues is moving towards that point, And that tips us off to the next plague. It's, it's, it's the catalyst, really, for the next plague. You get the whole plague. Maybe Pharaoh acquiesces. He, he gives a concession, and then he, he reneges on that. And then we get at the end of the plague, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, or Pharaoh hardened his heart, or the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's hardened heart. Hardened through God's sovereign plan and activity and through Pharaoh's sinful pride. And so let me just read to you the first few verses of last week's text just to show you how these two things fit together. God's sovereign plan through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh's sinful, prideful rebellion. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 3, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that... I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Why is Pharaoh's heart hardened? Because of that. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Why is Pharaoh's heart hardened? Because of that. 
divine sovereignty and human responsibility here presented for us as compatible with one another. That God can be entirely sovereign over Pharaoh's heart. God can be the agent hardening Pharaoh's heart. And it can also be true that Pharaoh is responsible for his own sinfulness, rebellion, and pride. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And as I said last week, these two things in the word of God, in the Bible, are both held up and presented as truth. And as I've said many times, our responsibility is not to, in our limited, fallible, mortal reasoning, to figure out precisely how they go. Our job is to trust And to know our limitations and our finitude. And to believe with humility God's truth. As it is presented in the Bible. So divine sovereignty and human responsibility fitting together in a compatible way that we really at the end of the day do not understand. And I would say cannot understand. There is an impenetrable aspect to this relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But both are at work. So as we begin the ninth plague, we recognize that Pharaoh is in that same hardened state. That's where we're at when we open these verses. That same hardened state that we've seen all along. And just as we've seen in the final plague... Of the other two sets, here there is no warning. So what we've noticed is that there's a pattern to the plagues. In the first plague of each set, Moses goes out to meet Pharaoh down by the water in the morning. In the second plague of each set, he goes into his palace. He goes into Pharaoh. And in the third plague of each set, there is no warning. And so here we find no warning. There is the Lord's command to Moses, verse 21, stretch out your hand. And then there is Moses' obedient response. Verse 22, so Moses stretched out his hand. And the Lord's command and Moses' action involve one thing. One thing, darkness. Darkness will fall on all the land of Egypt. And this darkness here is described in various ways. It's meant to give us a, a very vivid picture we're given a very vivid picture. This is, this is a short description. And, and the third plague in each set is shorter, typically. This is a short description, but it is vivid at the same time. We're, we're able to enter in very clearly and see kind of what this looked like for the Egyptians. And it begins by saying, it is a darkness to be felt. Verse 21. If translated this way, it would be a way of metaphorically describing the thickness Or the density. It's kind of like the heat to be felt in Georgia, maybe, is one way you would understand it. You you feel the heat. Uh, It's on your shirt. It's in your hair. It's on your cheeks. You just walk out to the car and you come back in the middle of the summer and it's all over you. It's a, a, a heat to be felt. It could be a way of metaphorically describing the thickness or the density of this darkness. It is utter, utter, utter darkness, so extremely dark that it can, as it were, be felt. However, commentators point out that this is probably not the best way to translate the Hebrew, 
at this point. Instead, we could understand this to mean a darkness that will require groping around or feeling around, touching around. The imagery of it being so dark that you're sort of feeling around to try to find your way. Or a darkness that will cause people to grope around. That may very well be a better way to understand this. It will be as though God brings a blindness over all of Egypt. It is a a collective blindening. All of Egypt descends into blindness. Lights out for every Egyptian. They will have to grope around if they are to do or touch anything. This is pitch darkness, as it says in verse 22. This is the darkness of darkness. If you could find the dark corner of darkness, this is it. And this darkness will last for three days. Verse 23, the Egyptians did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Now, some have said, you know, this this plague is, uh, it seems a little weak. You know, when you think about some of the other plagues, maybe it's a little bit weak. I think if you experience this for three hours, you'd understand that this is not a weak plague at all. We'll talk in a moment why it is, why it represents a level of intensity uh, that, is, that is high enough to, to go right before the 10th plague, which is the most intense, obviously, of all the plagues. Three days. Depression, isolation, immobilization, These would have been the effects of this plague, probably after just a a few hours, but this goes on for 24 hours, and then for another day, and then for another day. Egypt shuts down and has zero light. Zero light is left in all of Egypt. Everyone groping, no one seeing each other, and they don't even get out and do things. Shut in because of this darkness. We don't know how God did this, but three days doesn't match an eclipse or a sandstorm. So we've been here before. We've talked about this, how there are individuals out there writing about these plagues to try to find, you know, sort of a series of natural events and try to explain these events naturalistically. And it's amazing to me how many commentators just jump on this boat, just get on this thing and take it on out to sea. Uh, We understand last week, as we talked about, that God does in these plagues use natural means. And especially last week, as we saw God taking an east wind and driving locusts in. Showing us that it's not just that God takes and turns the dust into gnats or turns the Nile into blood. God works in all kinds of ways, showing his governance over nature showing his supremacy and his sovereignty over the created order. We don't know how this happened, but it doesn't seem to match at all an eclipse or a sandstorm. Sandstorm is the typical way of describing this. You would think if it were a sandstorm, there'd be more than darkness mentioning. I can imagine that a sandstorm is uncomfortable in many ways, not just the fact that it makes everything relatively dark. I mean, would a sandstorm make it this dark? The darkness of dark, pitch darkness, everyone 
groping around. This is miraculous with or without using natural means. We're just not told how God went about doing this, but he did it. He did it, and that is certain. But this darkness is not universal. It does not affect Goshen. Here, Goshen is not mentioned, but it says the place where the people of Israel lived, the place where God's people lived. And we've been told before that that is Goshen. Verse 23, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Once again, how did God do that? We don't know. They knew because they experienced it. They saw it. They could see. They weren't groping around. They weren't stuck in their houses They were able to see each other's faces and the faces of their children. There was light where they lived. Darkness for God's enemies, light for God's people. Darkness for God's enemies, light for God's people. This is a picture of the contrast that will exist on the last day. The day of the Lord, the day of judgment, when God brings all things to consummation, to completion. When that happens, we are getting here a little picture of the contrast that will exist on that day. Matthew chapter 13, verse 43, describes the situation for the righteous. Those in Christ, those clothed in the righteousness of Christ, those who've had Christ's righteousness credited to their account by God's grace through faith. Those who've trusted in Christ's blood to take away their sin guilt. Those who've received God's spirit to regenerate their hearts. Make them new. Matthew 13, 43. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's amazing. It echoes Daniel chapter 12. It's amazing because it tells us that God's people will not just be in the light. God's people will be light. God's people will shine like the sun. That's even more than being in the light. We will be shining with the very glory of our maker as it reflects off of us as it were. We will will be reigning with Christ, our elder brother and Lord. We are the sons of light. We are the light of the world insofar as Christ is the light of the world and he shines Through us, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now, hear the contrast with the wicked. Hear the contrast with every person who does not bow to Christ Jesus as Lord and King. The contrast for every person who does not place trust in Christ alone to take away the guilt of their sins. They will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The outer darkness, once again, the darkest corner of dark. What a contrast. Shining as the sun versus dwelling in outer darkness. That's the difference between the believer in Christ and the unbeliever in Christ at the end of time. Here we get a picture so what would, have, what would have been the impact of this plague on Egypt? As we finish up this, this point here, what would have been the impact of this plague on Egypt? Or to ask it a different way, what message was being sent to Egypt with this darkness plague? Well, three things here. 
death, disorder, and defeat. So let's take a moment and look at each of those. Death, disorder, and defeat. So first, death. This darkness points forward to death. Darkness being a picture of death when the eyes close and the brain stops and there is no more moving and seeing and and taking in physical realities. Darkness is a picture of death. And with this ninth plague of darkness, it points forward. It leans into the darkness of death for every firstborn person and animal in the land of Egypt. The death that will come in the tenth plague is anticipated in the darkness that comes in the ninth. Second, we see defeat. Probably, and we've talked a a little bit about the Egyptian gods. It's interesting. Some commentators say, you know, the the description of the plagues really uh, doesn't lend itself to interpreting it that, that the Egyptian gods are being attacked because the Egyptian gods aren't named. But here's the amazing thing about Exodus. Uh, None of the pharaohs are named. None of the Egyptian gods are named. Why? Because of the theology of Exodus. It is all about the name of Yahweh. How many times in a given plague do we read the name Yahweh? It's plastered over everything in Exodus. It's around every corner. It's under every bush. Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. But nothing from any other so-called God. Not one Pharaoh, not one Egyptian God to be named. But I think we're meant to infer as we read these plagues, we're meant to see beyond these plagues to the Egyptian gods, in some cases, that are represented by these plagues. And probably the most significant god in Egypt was Ra, the sun god. And there were other gods in Egypt associated with the sun. The sun was so important. We think about the importance of the Nile for for the livelihood of the Egyptians. And we think about the sun. It was always sunny. Always sunny. Every morning at the rising of the sun, there would have been worship of Ra in Egypt. And some have commented that when Pharaoh goes out to the water in the morning and Moses goes out to meet him, that he would have been doing some sort of religious ritual as the ruler of the land, some sort of religious ritual where he's recognizing uh, both the God of the Nile but also the God of the sun because he does it in the morning when the sun rises. By putting out the lights, God shows Ra to be nothing. We read earlier, about the creation of the sun. There is no sun god. There's the God who made the sun. And his name is Yahweh. And he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of the Hebrews. And Ra is nothing. Just as are all of the Egyptian gods. And Pharaoh himself. So we see death and defeat. Finally we see disorder. Remember the description of the world before God said, let there be light. You open up your Bible. Maybe you've read through the Bible in a year. You've, 
you've read through uh, the Bible. I, I remember years ago, I used to try to do the, read through the Bible in a year early on when I was a believer, and I would, I would read, I, I read Genesis so many times. Maybe that was, uh, you know, you, you sort of, un- unfortunately, and you hope this doesn't happen, but you kind of fall off after, uh, but you read Genesis a lot because you're geared up. It's like January at the gym, you know? You read Genesis over and over and over again, and so you've read these words before, The very beginning of the Bible, you're geared up, you're going through your Bible reading plan, you're reading slowly and carefully and meditatively. Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The chaos, the voidness, the darkness of the world before we read verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So what's happening here? Well, it it seems as though any reader of the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the the Pentateuch, anyone reading these books is going to make that connection. What God is doing here in judgment is he is bringing Egypt back to a state of chaos. It is as though this little patch of the world that was void and in darkness before God said, let there be light. It's as though God drags them back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. God drags them back to the chaos of this darkness. Pharaoh was responsible for maintaining the order of the cosmos. But here with this utter darkness for three days, all of Egypt descends into chaos. So do you see all the layers that's going on here? So we're not meant to read this and go, oh, that doesn't sound too bad. Darkness for three days, let me deal with that. Flies and mosquitoes, I mean, that's terrible. But darkness for three days, that's manageable. We're not meant to see it only in those terms. We're meant to understand all that is being communicated here right before the capstone of the 10th plague. So we see that darkness falls on Egypt. Secondly, we come to the negotiation that fails Negotiation fails. Look at verses 24 to 29. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to Yahweh. By the way, I go back and forth between Lord and Yahweh, but I want you to see, I'm just going to start reading only Yahweh. I just want you to see just in these few verses how many times God's name is mentioned in contrast to the utter nothingness of the others, so-called gods, that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve Yahweh our God. And we do not know with what we must serve Yahweh until we arrive there. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Well, here we go again, Pharaoh the negotiator. We've seen him do this throughout these plagues. He's quite the negotiator. This is Pharaoh trying to maintain his control. That's really what's at the heart of everything. You you have the magicians going, "Um, Pharaoh, this one's the finger of 
of God. And then you have the servants going, do you not see what's happening to Egypt? Our land is ruined. But Pharaoh wants to maintain his control, something the servants and magicians aren't as concerned about. Pharaoh loves himself more than anything or anyone, like every sinner. He loves his control and his apparent sovereignty. He may very well have to concede something to Yahweh, this battle of the gods, but he is certainly not giving everything. Pharaoh wants to operate on his own terms, maintaining some level of control over this situation. He may lose a match or two to Yahweh, but he is not willing to bow the knee. This this puny little man, this puny little man before the sovereign Lord of the universe, the God of the hosts of heaven, the God who created the archangels. This puny man, this mortal man, this encased, rotting man today as a mummy, will not bow the knee to the I am. His pride is great, and it drives his folly and rage. Do you see that? As we look at Pharaoh, do you see the destructive power of pride? Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Do you recognize that pride is your greatest enemy, and it is the thing most likely to sabotage your life. It's not the thing you typically see as your greatest enemy. When you look out on the battlefield and you see uh, the shots coming in at you, it's not typically pride that you see shooting at you, which shoots at you from within. We see other enemies We will fight other evils. We will fight other sins while letting this one stay. Letting this one remain. Letting this one exist below the surface. Excusing this one. Justifying this one. Petting this one. Coddling this one. All the while it is our greatest enemy. Do you see the destructive power of pride in the person of Pharaoh? Let him be a great illustration to us all as we consider what pride does to our souls and to our lives. So what happens here? Pharaoh calls Moses and reverses his policy from the previous plague. Okay, fine. Now I will allow you to take your children as well. I don't know how you talk anyone into going to another land and leaving their their kids. It's insane, but that's what we read last time. He he doesn't want to let the children go. You have to keep the children here. You go do your little worship thing, and then you come back. Your kids are going to stay here. We're going to be watching them until you get back. Now he's going to let the children go. Fine, you can let the children go, but not the animals. you got to leave the animals here. Go do your little worship thing. Take your kids, but you got to leave the hoofs. you got to leave 
all of the animals. Once again, Moses' response is clear and straightforward. Verses 25 to 26, but Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burn offerings that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve Yahweh our God. And we do not know with what we must serve Yahweh until we arrive there. We can't go without our animals. It's not going to work, says Moses. Remember, Pharaoh, we are going to worship our God. We will need sacrifices and burnt offerings. And of course, that takes us all the way back to Abel, right? It reminds us that sacrifice is necessary if sin is to be removed. That because of sin, there must be death. That's precisely what God told Adam in Genesis 2 in the garden. Sacrifice, every sacrifice we read about in the Bible reminds us that there must be death paid for sin. Every sacrifice points us to Christ. Every sacrifice reminds us that the Redeemer had to die. He did not just come and gather us to himself. He did not just come and give us great teaching. He did not just come and set us on a path of light, a moral path of wisdom. He came to die, to suffer. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We will need sacrifices and burnt offerings, Pharaoh. But we can't worship God without them. Nor can we without the one sacrifice of Christ. God has not told us what exactly we need. So we must take everything so that we can worship Yahweh on his terms. So, Pharaoh, not a hoof shall be left behind. Now, worshiping Yahweh on his terms is something Pharaoh knows and cares nothing about. He could care less about Yahweh despite all the manifestations of his power despite all of the demonstrations of the fact that the Egyptian gods are nothing and Yahweh is sovereign and supreme, despite him showing Pharaoh that he's the master over creation, he knows and cares nothing about the worship of Yahweh. If Yahweh is just some cheap deity to appease, like all the gods of the nations, then certainly there can be partial measures Be 70% happy with you guys, right? Maybe 90% happy with you. Perhaps you even get to 99%. No, God must be worshipped entirely according to his terms. And his wrath must be 100% appeased. But if Yahweh is the sovereign ruler of the universe... No one can direct worship of him except him alone. This is something that Pharaoh knows nothing about. So what is Pharaoh's response? One word, rage. At this point, we've already seen anger from Pharaoh. At this point, Pharaoh just explodes. His hair standing up. He's tearing clothes off. He is angry. He is filled with rage at Moses at this point. This is the final straw. This is it. But before we get there, we see verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart 
and he would not let them go. So here we're reminded once again that God is sovereign over all of this. God is in control. God is not finished yet. Why doesn't Pharaoh acquiesce at this point? And the answer is simple. And anyone here this morning who, who says, you know, who struggles with this whole idea of God being sovereign over human hearts, sovereign over human wills, sovereign over human choices, anyone struggling with that, understand this. Here we are presented with the fact that God is not finished yet. That's why Pharaoh's heart is still hard, is because God is not done. He's not done showing his glory. He's not done showing his power. He is continuing to bring glory to himself through the plagues as he squashes the gods of Egypt and their Pharaoh under his might. The might of his hand, the might of his arm, the might of his little finger. But back to the rage, Pharaoh's rage. Look at verse 28. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Wow. This is certainly a turn of events. You know, if you're just reading these plague accounts, you're reading through them very quickly, this kind of smacks you in the face. This is a bit of a shocker. It seems to come out of nowhere, but it lets us know that these plagues are not going to go on forever. And maybe you've been thinking that as we've been doing these Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. You've been thinking, how long are we going to be in the plagues? These things are going to go on forever. But this tells us that they're not going to go on forever. They are about to come to an end. This turn of events, this abrupt turn of events tells us that the purposes of God are nearing their accomplishment. That God has nearly done what he set out to do. Pharaoh here has had enough. Negotiations have broken down. He refuses to grant Moses another audience with the king. This is it. He's done. Swallow up all of Egypt. Swallow up all the people of Egypt. Swallow up all the animals. Lick the ground of all produce. And this one godless, pride-filled man will stand there on his little heap of dirt, beating his chest, not bowing to God. And here's the thing. Apart from the grace of God, so too every single child of Adam, every single child of Adam. So Moses, recognizing that the plagues have come to this nearly final point, responds to Pharaoh in verse 29. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Now we don't know when Moses and Pharaoh are having this conversation. We don't know whether it is during or after the three days of darkness have ended. We're just not given that information. Maybe this is happening, uh, ironically, maybe this is happening in darkness. Uh, And uh, Pharaoh says, you're not going to see my face again, but he can't see his face anyway because it's so dark. Uh, Maybe. Maybe it's happening afterwards. We're just not told. But what we do know is that this back and forth This back and forth and back and forth between Yahweh's servant and this wicked ruler is now over. The back and forth 
is done. God is about to put the nail in the coffin. He is about to release his people. He is about to bring redemption. And he will do so by means of the blood. And we started here this morning, this imagery of the blood. The Passover has always been, for me, for many years, my favorite image of the gospel in the Old Testament. The blood. God will rescue his people he will pass over them because of the blood. As we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, here in just a minute, remember this. We are the reality to which the picture was pointing. It's so easy for us to see so much significance and so much meaning and so much power and so much aloofness to a text like this in the Old Testament. But this blows our minds. This blows our minds that what happened there in the Exodus was meant to be a picture, an anticipation, a pointer, and a type of what God has done in each of our hearts if we're believers here this morning. In a sense, that that small little picture was meant to point to this great reality that God has called us out of darkness, out of slavery, into liberation and freedom in his marvelous light. How did he do that? How did he redeem us? By the blood of the Lamb. And that's what we're going to celebrate very visually and tangibly here in a moment. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for showing us your glory again through your word. Father, I pray for our children who are in here listening, Lord, that they would see that you are the sovereign God, that nothing happens apart from your control, that not a single person is saved simply because he was moving along in life and decided one day, you know, I think I'm going to believe in Jesus. But Father, you called us, you you chose us before the world began in Christ and you, you call us to yourself and you save us by your grace apart from our works. You give us new hearts, you give us new hearts with which we turn to you in repentance and faith. God, you are gracious to us. The only reason any of us is saved is because of your sovereign grace. We praise you this morning for that. We thank you, God, that we're here worshiping you. We ask for your forgiveness for our sins. We pray that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that you would reestablish our hearts where we are falling, Lord, that you would pick us up, where we're stumbling along, where we've deviated from the path, where our eyes have been fixated on the fancies of this world. Lord, would you draw us back to yourself? Would you use this very special means of grace as we come to the Lord's Supper? Would you use this, this remembrance of Christ, this communion with Christ, this communion with the body of Christ, your people? Would you use this this morning as a means of grace to draw us to yourself in absolute trust in you and your providence, absolute humility before your supremacy and greatness? Lord, filled with love for the people whom you have redeemed. And the love, love for those who do not know you, that they would come one day to shine like the stars of heaven. We praise you for this time. We ask that you would bless this celebration of the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.